Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig in to the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Luigi Peñaranda. He is associate professor of uh, leadership, New Testament, and uh, Latino, Latina ministry here at Wesley Seminary, along with me, a colleague with me at the seminary. And this week's text is Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. That's Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already doing so, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of your choice and to pass this show on to others so that they may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Luigi. Isaiah chapter 35, uh, the whole chapter, 1 through 10, short chapter, Isaiah 35, verse 1 through 10, opening up all my versions here. All right, do you want to read and I'll pray, or would you rather do it the other way around? Um, sure, I'll go ahead okay. and read. Mm-hmm. All right, you go for it. You read, and then I'll say a word of prayer, and we'll jump in and see where it goes. Perfect. Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf and stopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals shall become a swamp, The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. Hmm. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy 
shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for the word of God, the word that was spoken through the prophets by the power of the Holy Spirit. We give you thanks especially for the prophet Isaiah and the word which you spoke through him, and specifically for this word, this prophetic word uh, in chapter 35. And so it is with grateful hearts that we then approach you and ask for the grace of illumination that our minds may be enlightened and our hearts uh, shed full of love and of the light needed to um, see what it is that your spirit is saying to us here and now, not just to Luigi and I, but to all those who are listening in and and the word that you're placing on um, all our hearts to be handed on to others as Christians and as Ministers of the gospel, we are invited and empowered to be bearers of the word, bearers of the word of God. And yet we cannot bear the word by our own might, but only by your spirit. So we ask that your spirit would be at work in our conversation this hour uh, for the sake of your glory. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So this is for the third Sunday of Advent. We got this beautiful uh, passage from Isaiah. All of the Old Testament lessons from the Revised Common Lectionary for year A for Advent are from Isaiah. So we've got mm-hmm. we've, so we've had this little uh, series of Isaiah texts. Uh, so this is the one that. Uh, <laughs> That we have before us here. What's uh what 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 uh stirs your heart and uh inspires your mind? What what's drawing you in as you look at this text today? Yeah, it really is a very interesting text. Uh, normally, when I think of Isaiah, I was trained and and grew accustomed to to viewing chapters uh, one through thirty nine as very negative, the judgments, the the punishment, uh, the condemnation of the nations, and uh, just kind of seeing that as uh, as the gloomy tone of voice of the prophet. And then the second Isaiah, chapters 40 and on, as the promises, the hope, the promise of restoration. So when uh, you invited me to read this text, looking at it and seeing how hopeful it is, how uh, uh, it's full of promises of salvation and redemption. Uh, it, it's just a, an interesting read in a section that I would consider to be uh, more of uh, the doom of the nations. Uh, so it is interesting to see this passage and the, the way it begins to to give hope to to the redeemed of the Lord. And uh, uh, the the first image that it evokes to me clearly is. Uh, 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 re- their return from from exile and, yeah. and, and the hope that the Lord is coming uh, to bring His people back and to restore them and uh, and the language of hope and transformation that is in the text. So that's the, that's my first of observation. Yeah, yeah, comfort, comfort my people. You know, that's often 
the opening line of 40 Correct. is often seen and, and rightly so as a, as a kind of shift, a turn um, from the, the threat of exile in the first uh, 39 chapters. Um, and yet, you know, here you have it, encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble, um, you know, the, 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 um, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees, you know, that kind of language of, uh, the lame, the, the lame will leap like a deer. Um, and just all this joy and the sorrow will be gone and the joy will come in the final verse. And it, just thinking about that literary context for a moment. And then, then you mentioned exile. So we will talk about that too. It, it struck me and I don't know how important this is, but it seems relevant, I think, uh, to how we might interpret this text in its, in its original literary context. So this is the last, what, what I'll say the last oracle of the first part of Isaiah, right? Because then from 36 to 39, it goes into a more narrative mode, right? Now there is some poetry and there actually, I, I misspoke. There is a brief, there, there is a, a brief oracle in the middle of 37, but again, it's framed in the context of this highly narrative material, right? So, and then you also get Hezekiah writes this letter that's also has a poetic form. So there's some poetry, but it, it the, the, there's really a kind of, this is our last, you could say, so I misspoke to say it's the last oracle. Say it's the last standalone oracle, right? That just kind of stands there without a kind of highly narrative structure like 36 through 39, which then in many ways like confirms, I think the fact that, like you said, you and I have been taught to think of like 40 as the kind of more positive mm -hmm. turn, but it, but it makes the case for seeing a book like Isaiah as really being in two parts or perhaps even three, but at least two, right? Uh -huh. Where there's, yeah. because there's such a clear, because it would make sense actually that I, you could see Isaiah ending at 39. You could even see it ending at 35, right? Um, and therefore sharing the structure of like a Jeremiah or Ezekiel that really only turns positive for a couple chapters at the end. But the most of it is the prediction of, of doom with a little kind of, hope on the last couple chapters right whereas right. like isaiah almost is like 50 50 with the hope stuff right <laughs> um i don't know is I, I don't know if that helps but i mean you could almost see 35 in a way as the kind of anticipation of what's developed in more fully than in chapters Absolutely, 40 and yeah. on this is almost like second isaiah in short form as it were i don't know if that makes any sense but. yeah yeah and i think from a literary perspective Again, it forces us to read the text differently, and and uh, I'm not an expert on Isaiah or the th theories of composition, uh, but it is interesting when you look at it canonically how th there are these places, these unique texts that have a way of reorienting your understanding of what Yahweh will ultimately do, and. Uh, and I think, you know, they're spread out in the book, but it is really interesting to find this section here that at the canonical level, uh, it, it really forces us to reorient, uh, our understanding of the text and, 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 uh, and maybe to even reimagine that the older sections in which, in which we see, we hear harsher tone of voice, 
will ultimately need to be uh, mitigated with these sections of hope and restoration. And so in, in any case, beyond the scholarship, I think that the, the feel of a reader going through a text in which there is uh, some harsh words or some uh, feelings expressed that kind of bring you down and, and disorient you in, in what, what is God up to? And all of a sudden you have this text uh, embedded in the literature that kind of reorient you to say, oh, ultimately he is up to restoration. Yeah, and that's very fitting. I mean, just the, you know, two chapters back, all of 33 and 34 is pretty pretty doom and gloom, right? And there's even some language like 33 verse 9 says, mm. the land mourns and pines away. Lebanon is shamed and withers. Sharon is like a desert plain and Bashan and Carmel lose their foliage. And then hear that as what's immediately preceding then the words of this text, the wilderness, the desert, same word. And the desert, well, my bad, wilderness and desert will be glad. And Araba will rejoice and blossom. See, it's the same imagery. We're losing the leaves and now blossoming like a crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon, see, same reference, uh, will be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So you get some of the same place names right mm-hmm. yeah and the same imagery of a of a wilderness like you go from the the greenest parts of the land are withering away right that's what's predicted right and yet at the same and again if you were just there hearing these preached on a street corner or hearing them handed on as poems in a in a in a tradition or if you were a scribe writing them down or or uh, someone in Jerusalem hearing them read aloud, you know, a generation later, whatever. Mm-hmm. And all you had was just the poems. Like, if, you know, and you, you heard the stuff I quoted from 33 and then heard this stuff from 35. Right. Using the exact same imagery in the opposite direction. At this point, if all you had was that, you don't know which one's coming first and which one's coming second <laughs> or which one's going to happen. Or if they're both, I mean, you could take it as a Deuteronomy kind of thing. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, obey the law and this will happen. Disobey and that will happen. Right. Right. Like without the larger structure of, of Isaiah, actually you wouldn't, the text itself doesn't tell us, even though it obviously has exile imagery. Um, like you said, it's, it's just imagery. So it do, it's not self-interpreting. You need that larger context. Is this making sense? What I'm raising? I'm maybe yeah. I'm making I, a problem out of nothing, but. No, no. And I, I, I think, that that is why looking at it from a canonical perspective, in any case, uh, like we could look at it just uh, uh, isolated as oracles mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and 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 you know literature that was edited and at some point ended up uh, formatted this way. And I, I agree with you. I think the exercise is helpful in both ways to just kind of hear the text for what it is saying with the images that is conveying. Uh, but at the same time, I do feel that there, there is a, a canonical narrative, a way in which it was structured that brings you back, reorients you as you read through Isaiah and helps you ultimately see uh, 
and, and see some of these movements. The other thing that caught my attention, John, is uh, the language of wilderness, of rejoicing, of, of joy, resemble a whole lot of the language of the Exodus narrative and, mm. and, and going through the wilderness, heading to, to the land and, and, and the land that, that, that they know will be a fruitful land, a land where honey and milk flow. And it is this image again, which is beautifully presented through poetry of, of the land that, uh, that was deserted coming back to life and blossoming and being beautiful. And, and the symbol of restoration that is conveyed through uh, the, the prosperity of the land or, or, or the blossoming of the land. So uh, another thing that I noticed that I think is quite important is how the prophet talks about redemption, but uses images that are based on, on land. And, <laughs> and, and this is quite important, that. I think, <laughs> uh, to understand the restoration of Yahweh, that he's not just coming to set his people free, is that he's placing them into a land that's blossoming, a land where, where, a land that belongs to Yahweh in any case, and and that is why it is prosperous. What do you think? Yeah, and which, well, I think that's crucial in the sense of like the earthy and embodied character of salvation, right? Which yes. actually, I mean, uh, honestly, I think we should take a break because I'm gonna I'm gonna say the word incarnation, and at that moment we're moving beyond the text <laughs> into interpreting, because it is Advent though, you know, so it fits. That's right. So let's yes. take a quick break and come back and talk some more about that. Okay. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with uh, Luigi Peñaranda. And we are looking at Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. And there's a whole bunch of issues already coming up. We, you, you've, you've, thrown, you've drawn our attention back to Exodus. We, we're looking ahead to exile. I want to come back to both those things. But you, you mentioned this stuff about land. I think this is one of these places where I, this has been a theme in this, in this Advent series is kind of doing, there's been some meta conversations and, and maybe they haven't been conversations. They might just be commentary from me, but. Uh, about the kind of responsible use of prophetic texts by Christian preachers, right? It's been a kind of motif. Uh, Aaron and I talked about it last week. Steve the Neff and I talked about it the week before. Mandy and I are going to talk about it next week, right? And, and I've been attempting, I don't know if I've used the same language every week, but discriminating or discerning between a kind of uh, what I'll just call a cheap use <laughs> of, uh-huh. of New Testament fulfillment and then a more uh, uh, a sort of more careful, thoughtful, responsible kind of use. And maybe I want to differentiate kind of three kinds actually now. Okay. I just thought of this. So there, there's, I, I want to call it like a, a canonical use, right? So there's when the New Testament quotes or alludes to an Old Testament passage, even if it's doing it in a way that I wouldn't necessarily do it or that Isaiah would recognize, that has a validity because the New Testament did it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and I think there, there is one of those for this that we'll talk about, but I'll wait okay. on that for a moment. Sure. Um, and then there's like the cheap kind where basically it's Christian interpreters aping the way the New Testament does it, but not always with the kind of biblical imagination that funds those, you know? Yes. Um, so for example, I mean, like uh, 
you know, Matthew will, you know, quote and say, you know, out of, out of Egypt, I called my son, you know, and then you read the original context of Hosea and you're like, that doesn't really seem that many connection, you know? Right. Um, but a guy like Matthew knows the larger context of that book. He knows that when, I mean, that's from Hosea 11, right? Yep. And he knows that Hosea 11, like Isaiah 35, is a promise of return from exile, enlist in some sense, right? And in fact, Matthew is in a way saying that. He's saying the new exile, I mean, the return from exile, which is itself a kind of new exodus, is what's happening in Jesus, Right. So even though he might just be quoting one verse, I don't think we need to think of the New Testament as engaging in kind of cheap one for one. Oh, this exact verse was about the Messiah and Jesus did it. You know, no, it's always at a you. deeper level of connection, which is what you were saying about that larger canonical kind of story or context. And so then something that I want to bring up now is to say a kind of Christian use that would not be a direct citation in the New Testament, and pardon them how long I'm going on here, but I'm about to land the plane, so sorry, is this theme that you highlight of the, the highly, the land, earthy, bodily, the Adam, you know, dirt kind of character of salvation in this yes. passage. And on the one hand, we want to avoid just being too literal, but at the same time, we don't want to be so figurative and so, quote, spiritual that we actually miss that the whole promise of the Christmas story is God in the flesh, right? God in flesh and blood, right? Uh, God walking on the earth, God walking in the desert. Um, the highly embodied character of God's saving work, I think is a crucial point of connection between the Christian doctrine of incarnation. That's kind of the focus of the Advent season, or at least moving up to, and yeah. the, that theme in this passage that you highlighted. So I hope that that's a more responsible Christian usage of Isaiah 35 than just a cheap, uh, you know, one for one fulfillment of each little point. But. Uh, absolutely. And I, I think you're making a great point. Uh, sometimes when we think about Advent or salvation, we, we can see and be very grateful that, uh, Christ has come to save us, to forgive our sins. And, and we quickly turn our eyes into a, a future, an eschatological uh, future of being with God. But often it tends to be a disembodied being. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, we'll just go to heaven and we're grateful for Christmas because we can go to heaven. And, and, and sometimes we just kind of quickly bypass the passages of restoration and uh, and and uh, I think the image here, John, that is interesting to me, and I would meditate on Advent this way, is the image of of uh, moving from displacement to relocation uh, to a new pl placement in, in the land, a restoration in which in which uh, the people have been displaced, but in a sense, Yahweh has been displaced. Uh, but when mm -hmm. Yahweh returns to Zion, when, when he uh, dwells in the desolate land, the land becomes the land of Yahweh, the place where we would be restored. Uh, so it is, it is another move in which Yahweh has returned, and the return of Yahweh is an invitation to the return of the people to to a restore 
land, a restored place, a restored creation, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and and in, in those aspects, you begin to see then the, the poetry moving from uh, the, the desolation to the blossoming, uh, the weakness into strength, those who mourn kind of moving into the joyfulness. And all of these are certainly salvation motifs and, and motifs that we express in Advent. But often we, we omit the landedness, the, the, the yeah. finding a relocation in, in, in the Lord. Uh, I find it really interesting, the language of the highway. Uh, yeah, I was just going to bring that times. up. <laughs> yeah, and 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 the the way of the Lord, and you hear those echoes is somewhere else in in Isaiah, right? And when 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 the, even the New Testament quotes John the Baptist is is preparing right, prepare the a way, way mm-hmm. right? this highway for the Lord, and uh, uh, very interesting language that reminds us about. And that's God in verse forty. That's that's right after the comfort comfort stuff. That's right that you referenced earlier. Chapter forty. Yeah. 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 So it, interesting. I, I find that to be really interesting. And uh, uh, then here comes a little hermeneutics too. Uh, as I was reading this passage and thinking about uh, exile and looking at our current global situation with refugees and yeah. displacement, and I, I, I wonder if they would read this kind of text differently. And that is not just God come and rescue me. I'm in a refugee camp, but it, it is sort of like I am in in no man's land, yeah. waiting for a restoration. And and how that changes when when your relationship with location and God who comes back to to take possession of a land that belongs to Him uh, gives you a theology that I think is is more incarnational to use the word that you use. Yeah, and the, the you, you talked about displacement, and then there was a word you used a, a kind of re a re a replacing. You know, a you don't want to say replacement, relocating, that, yeah. a relocating, and and I mean, as someone who like lives in North America as a place where a lot of refugees um, end up finding their place. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, for me, it's, it's crucial for me to, to hear my opportunity and responsibility to welcome the sojourner in another land, right? And there's a lot of texts about that, right? Absolutely. But, I mean, for a refugee, it's, 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 it'd be one thing for me as a welcomer of a refugee to say, but of course you want to go home, right? As if, you know, like that, that would be an act of, of non-welcome, right? Before the actual refugee hearer, right? Uh, the hope that actually justice and peace would be done and they could go to the home of their origin would be the hope, right? Like they don't actually, most refugees don't actually want, uh, to just, you know, never go home, right? Uh, it's not always an option, right? right. Uh, they, you know, but I mean, you know, the thought that actually there would be shalom in, in, at the in the land of their youth would be Absolutely. the the greatest hope, right? And which then raises the question for me: like I know that we, I mean, part of the specific details, but I mean, 
when it comes to like the Syrian refugee crisis, the extent to which both European and American, um, uh, for lack of a better term, progressives have made a point, I think correctly, of the opportunity and responsibility to practice welcome, mm-hmm. the lack of um, resistance and holding accountable our leaders for the extent to which the refugee crisis was created by choices that Europe and European and American forces made. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, uh, now, that gets into the weeds. I was just getting <laughs> political, but hey, you and I always do theopolitical when we yeah, read texts because right. we're good exegetes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but you can't talk about Isaiah without talking about the theopolitical because it's no, this is I'm, not an abstract look, text. This is not about chapter, salvation. Yeah, this isn't chapter, salvation as in leaving the body. This is no, this is here right. and now salvation. Right. Right. And I, so I, I mean, to me, it's them. like the the refugee crises are usually created by great power conflict in their proxy wars. Yes, absolutely. Right? And the the great power conflict concerning US, Russia, Iran and Israel and that kind of dynamic that's been playing out in Le- in the Levant mm-hmm. um is a direct contributor and to the refugee crisis, the Syrian refugee crisis. And for us to just kind of like say, "Oh, well, they can just come here." It's like, yeah, that's fine, but Isaiah is pressing me to say, you know, the greatest gospel hope would be that Syria would be a, you know, uh, safe, peaceful, just uh, uh, nation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Is that making sense? How can, how can I say that in a way that doesn't make me inhospitable <laughs> as if I'm saying, I don't want you in my country? Because it isn't that. It's not that I, yeah, you know, I, I, I think several things I would say. Uh, one is sometimes we, we think of our relationship with the land uh, in, in more of an ownership terminology. Ah, okay. And I think, That's helpful. I think one of the, 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 the things that we will see in Scripture is that even Israel is a tenant in the land. Ah. And there, therefore, all the figures of the, 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 Lord, the land belongs to the Lord uh, and everyone else is a tenant in the in the land and i think it's our relationship with the creation and so in many ways what israel experiences uh, when when he goes through exile is is the experience of sin has displaced them and mm. and in this context it is a very literal uh displacement it is a, mm-hmm. a, the exile but it is interesting to see in isaiah how the condemnation of sin kind of uh, ends up in this displacement and in, in the passage here, John, something that I was looking at, it talks about um, uh, the highway that shall be called the holy way, and the unclean shall not travel on it, uh, but it shall be for God's people. It is really interesting when we think about the land, the promised land, and all the enemies of Israel, how this is such a strategic plays ah. where it, it connects it communicates uh, and ultimately it's been a land of a, a lot of peoples right historically so it is kind of hard to say like who owns yes. the land and i think the old testament would answer is like the the land is the lord's and uh, and we're all else- we're all sojourners here right <laughs> exactly that's the whole rationale of the sojourner commands are always Welcome the stranger because you yourself were a stranger here. You wandered 
you wandered in Egypt. Your father was a wandering Aramean. Right? Right. Uh, Abraham was himself a sojourner here. He doesn't own this land. And, and I wonder, too, if in many, in many ways the, the Old Testament plays with the image of Jerusalem and Zion, right? And, and yes, we have this earth, earthly Jerusalem, but when the Lord is truly the Lord of the land, this is, this is Zion. This is the place where the God dwells, and, and it becomes a, a, a holy place. It, it becomes the way of sanctity, I think is a good translation. Uh, in other words, it is the invitation of the Lord being the Lord of the land and, and us returning to him as the people of the Lord who is the Lord of the land. I don't know if that makes sense. No, I'm tracking. I'm tracking. I, uh, I, this language of the highway in verse 8 is really important. It's really helping me to even correct some of my initial kind of hunches there. The imagery of land can imply a kind of static relationship between God and his people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think our instinct to kind of spiritualize things sometimes can be motivated by a correct sense that a kind of uh, sort of undialectical, literal, fixed relationship between a land and a people, right, is doesn't have the kind of openness that's appropriate for the people of God, right, mm-hmm. who are being sent and to bless the nations, not just to advance their own cause, right? But when you think of land as a highway, not as a kind of destination, right, <laughs> but as a highway, as a place where God is moving, and where God's people are moving into and out of and back into and where other nations are passing through and being blessed along the way, then all of a sudden the relationship between people and land is rendered a little bit more living with this language that you translated, what a, a, a way of sanctification or a way of sanctity. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's what I said. What's the word? Uh, I wanted to look up the word real quick. It's uh, verse eight, right? Eight B. Let's see. Uh, Akira, it is. It is in Hebrew. It is uh, Kodesh. Yeah, I see. Which is the okay. holy, yeah, holy. Yeah. Oh, there holy, it is, Kodesh. The okay, world, I just was doing it backwards. Way. Good. Oh, and is the word right before it? Is that the uh, is that the word for way or highway? Let's see. Uh, well, we don't have to look all that up right now. But okay, <laughs> Kodesh. Okay, that's enough. That that helps me, right? Yeah. But you can think of it when I, I almost heard you saying less, less of, it's not just that this way is holy, meaning people can't touch it, but it's also, it's the way or the highway where, by which God makes things holy, right? It's an uh, act of kind of holiness. Maybe not. It's just a thought. I mean, when it says the unclean will not travel on it, that's pretty straightforward. It's holy. They don't belong on it, right? Right. Um, but the language right before was so striking, right? Of just the presence of God and the return of the people is turning the scorched land into a pool, right? So holiness is clearly not just the negative absence of impurity, but also the positive power of life, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very much this life-giving power. And, and, and as can be seen in the book of Leviticus, I mean, the thing that makes you the most, the thing that makes you unclean, the general theme and all the uncleanliness is proximity to death, right? Um, 
it's touching the blood, touching a dead body. It's this stuff that, that, you know, there are other things, but I mean, that's the kind of dominant motif. So clearly like unholiness and death are correlated enough that we should think of holiness and life mm-hmm. as correlated in a way that doesn't always register for us as moderns where we hear holy and that all we can think of is moral integrity, you know? Yeah. And not this kind of life giving power. Right. And it almost seems to me, I think that's excellent, John, because when we read texts like the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears <laughs> of the deaf and, uh, and stop, lame shall live like a deer. Like, like sometimes when we read those kinds of signs in the New Testament, we tend to think that here comes Jesus and because he's got all powerful, he's doing miracles. And he's just trying to convey, I am God, therefore I am capable right. of doing miracles. And it seems to me that what he's doing is very much an Isaiah 35 movement. It's like when God has come, when the Holy One has come, yeah. then this is what wholeness looks like. The blind can see. And, and whether we interpret that in a literal way, which we see that in the Gospels, or also in a poetic way, like Isaiah is, is telling us, we are seeing then that this is holiness walking around, that he has come. Oh, gosh, that's We good. could use that language that, that Yahweh has come to, to Zion, and, and, and he is the Lord of the land. And you can see a Jesus always kind of dropping parables of saying, the Lord left the tenants in the land yes, <laughs> and always kind of reminding them of these images that the Lord will come and, and, and make things right once again. And then we see the miracles of Jesus, which, which in many ways he was uh, alluding to this passage. Uh, but I think it has to do with, for instance, the unclean finding cleansiness, cleansing, yes. uh, uh, cleanliness. In Jesus, he comes and touches them, and there is a there's a holiness happening, not that not just in the moral aspect, but in that those who are unclean are being uh, healed, those who are forgotten are, are being restored, and the land that is supposed to be a land of blessing, and then all of a sudden is being occupied by the unclean which are not, you know, the, the marginalized, but those who have opposed the plan of God, then they will experience that he is coming to bring a new highway. He is retaking uh, what belongs to him. And in that, there is joy, there is restoration. Holiness has come, therefore the healing needs to happen. And I wonder if, if in many ways, like you said in the beginning, this is what Matthew and Luke and have in mind when they begin to quote the scripture saying, are we seeing Yahweh uh, coming back to Zion and, and, and it's happening in our eyes. The, the eschatology, the future hope is actually happening right here, right now in, in Jesus. Oh, that's awesome. So that, that connection of holiness and healing as kind of two aspects of just this kind of life-giving power and reality of God and how that's at work in Jesus and really helping to move beyond a kind of extrinsic notion of miracles as if Jesus has a kind of moral teaching and, but because we are stupid and don't pay attention, he does miracles so that we'll believe he's God 
so that we can receive his moral teaching that has no connection to the content of his miracles, right? That's excellent Which is a common kind of modern enlightenment way of, of, of locating the, the miracles as kind of a secondary, indirect kind of confirmation of the legitimacy of Jesus as a kind of moral teacher. Or the, a more kind of, uh, and you could say maybe a more, maybe more classical uh, Christian, but still reductive reading would be to say it confirms his deity, right? Because right. uh, in the Trinitarian controversies, the miracle is performed that kind of function, proving the deity. And those things may be true. Jesus is a, a great moral teacher, sure. and his <laughs> and Jesus is uh, the divine Son. But like actually seeing the continuity and connection between healing and his his teaching, his words, and his identity, and how all those are wrapped up in one picture of God's return and how it's all about the coming of God connected to the restoration of the people with each other, reconciliation with the land, and how all of a sudden like these healing stories take on a whole nother level when you think of them as cleansings, which is like in Mark, he he almost never uses the word healing. It's almost always Mm -hmm. clean. And the spirits aren't are called unclean spirits. Some translations make it evil spirits, which makes you miss the point. They're mm-hmm. unclean spirits okay. rendering these people unclean and therefore they can't be, they can't come to synagogue. They can't come, they can't come to Passover meal. They can't hang around their family. I mean, some of them have to live out in caves. The whole point is they're being restored. And so you kind of see, I'm, I'm hearing you say, tell me if I'm running too far with this. I'm hearing you say there's a kind of like a little mini story of return from exile in each of those person's lives when they get healed. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and a very real encounter, almost as if the, the Gospels present us a Jesus that is doing precisely what Israel has been hoping for the God yeah. will ultimately do. Uh, but they don't need to wait. In a sense, they don't need to wait any longer. It is happening mm. right here, right now, in the little stories of what he's doing. And, 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 and in many ways, I think that is confusing because if you just read Isaiah 35, and, and try to come up with some vision image of ultimate restoration. And you look at Jesus and say, well, he's kind of partially doing some restoration. Yeah. Uh, but really, like, when is this going to happen? And John the Baptist kind of doubts. And, uh, and we see those passages in which Jesus himself replies, is like, tell John that what I'm doing is what Isaiah said. <laughs> yeah, let me read that for see. let me read that for our listeners. You, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Matthew eleven and the parallel is in Luke seven. So this doesn't appear in Mark. It's only in the double tradition of Matthew and Luke. So it says when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his eleven disciples, so that's when he'd send them out in chapter ten, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while in prison, which is his kind of exile, as it were, right? heard of the works of the Messiah, he sent by way, sent word by way of his disciples. And they said to him, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. 
Blessed is he who does not stumble on account of me. And then he goes on to instruct the people about John and says that he's the Elijah that was to come and all that. Basically saying he's the one, he's the expected one. I'm the one who comes after the expected one. I am Yahweh uh, (laughs) in the flesh, uh, the very presence of God at work. Um, So he doesn't even explicitly, this is an example of of an illusion rather than a direct quote. He doesn't say, as the prophet Isaiah says, he just says it. He just describes what's happening in his ministry. And notice it's in the context of Matthew, importantly in the context of he's sent his disciples out preaching and healing and casting out demons. So he's not just saying, I'm, because that's what, that's the problem with the, uh, the notion that the miracles prove the deity of Christ because it accidentally proves the deity of the apostles. Um, <laughs> so you want to be careful with that argument, actually. Uh-huh, right, it proves right. too much. Uh, <laughs> um, um, in a way, it, he himself and in and through his, his apostles are walking along this, this highway of holiness, right? Mm-hmm. Th- this is happening. God's coming in. Exile, the return from exile is happening. And you can imagine that there were earlier centuries when, when people would have read Isaiah thinking, centuries before Jesus, thinking, oh yeah, this is, 35 is a nice metaphor for returning from exile. And, and it's, this has already happened, right? I think there would have been a lot of readers of Isaiah who would have seen sure. this as, as having been fulfilled in their past. And of course, when it was first penned, Isaiah might not have thought exile was going to happen as soon as it did, you know, at least at 35. Um, Later in the book, you get into the more details of of how soon it's going to be. He might have thought maybe this isn't going to happen until the end of time. Who knows, right? So you can see how even before Jesus, there would have been tensions between, is this something that happens at the end of time? Is this something that already happened? And the kind of disappointment with the fact that, yeah, we're kind of back in the land, but we're kind of, they're experiencing, I mean, the Galilean people that Jesus was ministering to would have been experiencing what would be called internal displacement, right? They, they're in the land, but they're not, uh, they, their own kind of self-determination is so undermined by the presence of the Romans and the economic and se- the economic oppression and the sacrilege of Roman worship taking place in public. I mean, all these things that are, that are displacing them so that they're in a, you could say that they're in a state of exile while mm-hmm. still in the land. Right. Right. Yes. Um, which is relevant even to the refugee question earlier, how we can, and we can even ask for those of us who are not refugees, to what extent are we in exile? Even though we are in the land we think we own, maybe precisely because we think we own it. Are we in a kind of displacement? Um, right. And need to be awakened to the reality of what it means to be, on a highway of holiness. I can't, I just love that name. That's what I want to name the sermon. Highway of holiness. Yeah, absolutely. That's how the NASB translates it. Highway of holiness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, to me that, that becomes, you know, there's different ways of seeing it, but in a way what Jesus is embodying, his incarnation is not just an identification with, uh, with the humanity when we think about flesh we often think about our our human flesh and he's doing these miracles to heal human flesh but i think there is there's a relationship with creation that's being restored in jesus as well uh and i think part of it is that recognition 
that the land belongs to the Lord, and that that in any case, any anything that we enjoy, we enjoy because He has. And I think the language in Isaiah is very clear because He is the Redeemer. Because right. uh, ultimately, and that image of the Redeemer is the only one that can set you free from from the bondage of of slavery and the bondage of the only one that can even restore your landedness for lack of a better word would be this redeemer this this one that has come back to the land and and i think it's an important restoration because again i think we our modern mind loves to use this language and see of our redemption and and a quick trip to heaven and a detached way of understanding, no, if the Lord has come back, if there is a highway of holiness, uh, then things are happening. And, and we just need to open our eyes and see how those blinds are seeing. And, and uh, you know, the, the ears of the deaf are being opened. Nothing is a call for us to say this is happening in Christ. The kingdom of hmm. God has come. And I think the New Testament theology, John, also tells us that uh our new promised land is not just the land of the promise, but the earth, ah. right? That, 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 that in any ways, wh- where we need to be restored is not so much on a land where we were born, as much as we are being alienated from the earth. I mean, going back to, to that hermeneutical thought, uh, I can't remember the statistics, but the amount of people that live in exile today it's just incredible amount of people that have no no place where they can say that is my home and many of them don't even have a place of return because they wow. are in they are displaced in their own land where they were born or brought up right and yeah so we have this kind of massive crisis of displacement uh and i think here is where where you hear the voice of isaiah uh just kind of saying, say to those who are fearful uh, of heart, be strong, don't fear. Here is your God. He will come. He will come and save you. So I, I hear those echoes. And I think very much um, the gospel writers are saying, hear the, hear the harmony of Isaiah in everything, in every melody that Jesus is singing. That's so good. Well, let's take a quick break and then come back and do some sermon starters for our listeners. Sounds good. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm your host, John Drury, and I'm here with Luigi Peñaranda, and we are looking at Isaiah 35, verses 1 through 10 which is the Old Testament lesson for the Revised Common Lectionary for year A for Advent week three. Now, I don't always specify all the lectionary context during ordinary time, but uh, I mean, we mostly adopt the Revised Common Lectionary just because it's a nice kind of starting point uh, to get some common texts. Um, when it comes to these, uh, the, se- the special seasons of the year, the Christmas cycle and the Easter cycle, it seems worth pointing out uh, how these fit into that, into that larger context. And, and uh, as our uh, listeners have already no- noticed, uh, especially during the uh, right out of the gate, but especially in the middle there, we were uh, jumping all over the whole scriptures and getting into themes, which is one of the one of the ways I one of the reasons I love uh, 
interpreting scripture with you, uh, Luigi, is you definitely take that, what you refer to as a kind of canonical approach, kind of locating things in this larger story, but not in a way that suppresses the details of the text in mm-hmm. front of us. Um, so with that in mind, kind of returning back to this text and thinking, okay, what advice could we give? What suggestions could we make to preachers and teachers listening in? Uh, what are some sermon starters? Where would you want to go with this in terms of a, a focus? I, I, I am actually interested in the process question for you because you and I share, I think, a, a kind of exegetical wide net tendency in our way of studying, right? Uh-huh. And so we might have some listeners who are that way, you know. Um, I, I know some preachers and teachers they really start to kind of find their focus and then that really motivates them to, to sure. start doing the study. And I, you and I aren't wired that way as much. We tend to just have a bunch of ideas. And then, so then, and, and we have other, and we would have listeners that would be like us in that regard. So it's okay. How do you, how do you like funnel it in? How do you like make a call on like what to focus on, you know, yeah, um, no. so much going on here. And I, I'm, I'm actually curious if there's a, uh, do you do you have a process for like sorting that out uh yourself you know or or is it just you just wait and it comes <laughs> yeah it it really depends uh there are certain aspects of the text that draw my attention and i i do love to spend time with the biblical text and getting it inside of me and looking at the words so i do spend most of my time doing the exegesis of a text yeah. before jumping into into the writing of the sermon. So, for instance, if I were to put together a, a teaching out of uh, this passage, uh, I would probably frame it around the subject of displacement. And, and to bring mm-hmm. it to the reality today, uh, I would try to look for illustrations in which... Uh, we could feel completely alienated from from the place that our relationship with with uh, our, the place where we live. So, for for instance, I would try to bring in different people. Uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, John, but have you ever felt alienated in your own workplace or in mm-hmm. your own house or even the holidays? It's really amazing talking about Advent. How you could bring the family together and in many cases be completely alienated from the one place where relationships yeah. should thrive and should should bring joy and and often at church we have those singing for joy for the christmas season but the reality is you could find yourself very much in that place where you're alienated relationally and from the context the places alienated at work alienated at home alienated from the context that we live in a political atmosphere right now in, in which regardless of your preferences and political inclinations, just about everybody's feeling alienated in, yeah. in one way or another. So uh, I would use those processes of alienation to bring us back to passages like this one and, and uh, in, in which, of course, this is Israel in context, and and whether it is this warning of of exile, or a reflection on on exile has continually happened to them, uh, but the Lord ultimately will will restore them. I think that's a theme that we we lose in the in the Advent uh, story, and uh, and uh, we quickly go from the celebrating the angels giving glory to God that yeah. Jesus has been born 
uh, and we've, we kind of lose the, the steps in which between the birth of Christ and his crucifixion, there, there is a way he, in which he works out what we see in Isaiah 35. The Holy One has come, and therefore there must be a rejoicing, but the rejoicing is happening in that uh, uh, those who are uh, weak are being restored, and those who were blind are being uh, healed, and those who, who were forgotten are finding their place because Yahweh has returned to Zion. And so I, I would build a sermon around that in that, you know, you have Christians and Christian relationships, but often living in, in that alienation with the context in which they are. And I do believe that part of the promise of redemption is that we would find this sort of restoration in our relationships and in our context. Uh, and so th- that would be a way in which I would try to frame um, my my teaching, John. Yeah, no, I think that's a great theme that that displacement. And I'm trying to find the best sort of English word for the healing. What you you called it the the relocating, right? Mm-hmm. But of course, with I mean, I'm just kind of matching it: displacement and then placement, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. To be to find one's place. So the, the, here's a phrase that kept coming up for me during our whole conversation. Is that fit? You might've heard me flipping pages. I was trying to find the exact, uh, I know the quote, but I wasn't sure the exact chapter number, uh, but from Augustine's confessions, right? Our hearts, we Lord, we were made for you and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Yeah. Um, and again, this can be done in a kind of escapist fashion. Um, but, uh, but I mean, I, I know for me, like, like often I, I need to find my first line, like mm-hmm. the, what's the one thing I'm going to say, uh, like my, my mantra that I'm going to say over and over in my <laughs> sermon. And if I have that, I can make it work because then I can build an outline and I can basically, I, I can draw from my exegesis as much or as little as relevant. I mean, I know you've heard me give the same sermon in like a 45 minute version and like a 10 minute version, right? Like, and it's the same sermon, right? Like it's just different, different length because you, you know, it's like, because of you, the way you and I study, we kind of amass a ton of exegetical stuff uh-huh. and you know, you're not gonna be able to use all of it. Right. Right. So right. for me, I just need a one, like a theme, a motif, a, a phrase, an idea, right. To kind of hang the whole thing on. Um, yeah. That's not how everyone preaches, but it's, I'm just being honest about my process. And I feel like almost that phrase could almost be a subst- it could be at least a placeholder for a while. And when I'm when I'm in the grind, especially when I was preaching every week, when I was a pastor in South Jersey, like I often would have these kind of placeholder hooks mm-hmm. that weren't really the hook until like the I changed the hook at the last minute, you know. Because I knew what I wanted to say. I just didn't have the right phrase yet. And they would often be famous quote from somebody. You know, it wasn't it wouldn't be my own. And for me, that's the hook this week. It's our hearts are restless until they find our our rest in you. Right. Just that Mm. simple notion of, but, but then interpreting that in a highly embodied kind of way, right. In accordance with this passage, right. It's in many ways redeeming the way that that text is often interpreted and perhaps even as Augustine meant it, but we don't have to concern ourselves about that today. Right. It's just, this isn't, Oh, we're always restless until we go to heaven. Right. Because in fact, I mean, that's exactly what Jesus is saying is like, this is happening now in my presence. Right. So that the, 
the here and nowness, and yet also subtlety and under the radar and subversive character of redemption, right? And to kind of, and then, and then I think in terms of the content, I'd want to build it out exactly the way you did, right? Take this theme of displacement, right? And, and maybe, maybe narrate, uh, the story of, of a refugee on, on the other side of the world and then narrate a story of that feeling of displacement that we can have in our very home. Um, and then make a, maybe more, a more cosmic statement of the kind of displacement, the groaning of all creation and how we're kind of out of place, you know? And then you kind of really enter into the text and let, let, let the language describe this beautiful vision of restoration, make some of those connections to the Jesus story that we talked about with the center in incarnation. Yeah. And you can kind of take incarnation as you can almost say that God, who is the, the Lord of every place, became displaced mm-hmm. so that we who are displaced might find a place in him or something like that, right? Right, right. Um, some kind of incarnational exchange where in a sense incarnation is in a certain, from a certain point of view, God's own displacement. It's a divine displacement. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Entering, entering into our displacement. Yes. Um, so as to redeem it, not just to leave it as it is. Right. Um, I feel like that could be a really beautiful sermon. And then when it lands in terms of uh, practically, it means it has a lot to do with, like you said, uh, putting our place in John, John the Baptist shoes to say on the days when you doubt that this is ever going to happen, right. this side of heaven, um, you know, just look at what's happening. Listen to the testimonies of where redemption is taking place and hold That's on right. to those small victories as in fact, the very presence of God in our midst. That's my, that's my attempt at a quick sermon. Excellent. I love that. When you were saying that, I, I was reminded of the passage in Luke where they could not find a place for him, <laughs> right? Uh, how, yeah. how the whole narrative of Jesus as a displaced one in order yeah. to to <laughs> give us a place is is very important. And even his and birth that, in uh, Bethlehem, in, at, as apparent for some reason, Joseph's living and working in a whole other province. Yeah. That's right. You know, and so is displaced. They're a displaced family. Uh-huh. You know, then exile uh, into, into Egypt. Into Egypt. Like the whole oh, narrative embodies this, this Place. similar movements. That's um, so good. And uh, now I again, I'm taking the the meta narrative, but uh, but even <laughs> the, the the wilderness journey of Jesus mm-hmm. uh, is it, it, a very important one. It, that reminds us of the, the places in the wilderness where Israel failed, Jesus overcomes, so that this yeah. promise of Isaiah comes to fruition. But I love the, the theme of, of finding your place. And, and I do, I, I, I see the characters uh, in, in the Advent story as well, finding their place when they come into contact with Jesus. Uh, you know, Mary pregnant and her whole son. Yeah. Kind of, she finds her place. She is blessed. She, she, the, the, the poor are elevated while the, the powerful fall. Uh, Simeon and Hannah, in, in a way, even relationally, begin to find their place, uh, ultimately 
in the fact that they are encountering this this holy one that has come to has returned to Zion. So I would definitely go with that that theme. Yeah, and I think for our listeners, I just say, I mean, if if you're crafting a sermon and you're feeling like, hey, where do I go with it? I mean, if you have a quiverful of 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 vignettes of displacement and finding place, you know, quiver of five, right? You know, like one or two from scripture, you know, one, two or three from, you know, one or two from everyday life, Mm -hmm. maybe one from pop culture. And then you put those together in a blender and make sure you, you have a main theme that you repeat. That's a sermon, man. Sermons don't have to have any more complexity than that. I I always liked, I don't, we don't always have to give people an outline, but I always like to just say, if you're really desperate, try this, right? Like, and I don't want to give people their stories. I mean, you got to find the stories that connect with you and that would connect with your, your congregation. That is so contextual. But I think thematically and structurally, I think that sermon could work in a lot of places. So thanks so much, Luigi, for the time that you've given. And uh, thanks, as always, to our listeners. I, I had a great time today. I love reading scripture with you. I always worry that the ones that I love are going to be the the less interesting to other people. I don't know why I have that anxiety. I shouldn't have said that as if I have no worry other than just like, I, I honestly, until like right at the end here, I haven't been giving much thought at all to like how helpful this is to our listeners. Cause I've just been fully immersed. I love sitting at your feet, Luigi. And I learned so much. You always see things and ask things that I would never think of. So I just loved it. So thank you so much. It was a gift to me. And I assume it is for our listeners too. But I hope thank so. You, thank my, you. my pleasure. Thanks. Jim. Yeah. Thanks to you all, our listeners, as always, for chiming in. Make sure to uh, share and subscribe as well as rate and review the podcast just to get the word out. Thanks again, as always, to uh, Eric Fisher and Tabu Shang and all the great editorial work they do and for Tom Adamson uh, donating the theme music. With that said, we say to you, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.